All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mining Matters, a mining safety podcast presented by Fisher Phillips. My name is Chris Peterson, and with me, as always, is my partner, Arthur Wolfson. Arthur, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well, Chris. I guess the summer's moving along. Halfway through baseball season, right? Maybe if you have a team to follow. I don't know. That's that's debatable on my end as well, but you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it looks like uh, we're we're starting to see some of the activity we've been waiting for from MSHA, and I think that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think most everyone knows that MSHA's published its proposed silica rule in the Federal Register lowering the permissible exposure limit from 100 micrograms down to 50 micrograms. You're absolutely right, Arthur. This is something that we've been calling for um, to happen for quite some time. Uh, you know, MSHA bringing their, their rules in, in line with what OSHA did a couple of years ago. And so, yeah, I think on this episode, we're going to discuss the rulemaking process. I think, um, you know, we have a lot of questions whenever a rule like this comes out in terms of, you know, how does the rulemaking process work? Should should people submit comments? Um, is it even worth the effort to submit comments, right? What effect does that have on the rulemaking process? And yeah, I mean, you know, what's the effect on the final rule, right? I mean, people have questions about it. And interestingly, so with this proposed rule, MSHA's actually invited comments, you know, they say on all relevant issues, right? But then they specifically highlighted 50 questions for input. Right. You know, that ranges basically from, you know, what types of engineering controls should be considered, uh, what, you know, administrative controls should be considered, sampling, medical surveillance, right? So all of the substantive requirements of the rule, right? I'm just saying, hey, you know, let us know your thoughts, right? Is this going to work? Is this not going to work? So today, we thought we'd walk you through the rulemaking process, right? Kind of explaining how it all works and what happens with notice and comment rulemaking. So, Arthur, what is this rulemaking process and what can folks expect with MSHA's proposed silica? Right. You know, we wanted to touch on this more from a legal perspective. I think there is there's a lot of discussion already. There's been some preparations already within the industry. I think I'm not saying anything that we don't already know, any anticipation for the silica rule. There's a lot of good work being done on the technical side. But what Chris and I wanted to bring to our listeners today was from the legal side, you know, what what is going on uh, as a matter of law? And, you know, it's an area of law that doesn't get a lot of attention other than for those of us that deal with this area of law in terms of the development of regulations and the meaning of regulations and that type of thing. But it's not something you're going to see on the news. You're certainly not going to see a TV show about it, but it is an interesting area of law in my view. And frankly, it's something I've had the privilege of working with sort of through all aspects of rulemaking in my career. I've been involved in submitting comments on behalf of companies and trade associations in responses to proposed rules up through being involved in a legal challenge to a rule that came out that was pretty involved. So so we wanted to shed some light on that. And, and sort of the legal basis of it stems from a statute called the Administrative Procedures Act, which was passed in the 40s. And it really was Congress's attempt to say, okay, we're we're seeing the growth of government agencies and Congress isn't going to go back and pass 
statutes for every regulation and every rule that these agencies are, are going to come out with or are going to deal with. We want to let the agencies do that, but we need a process for that, right? Because these agencies are executive branch entities. They're not legislative branch. The legislative branch makes the law. But here we're saying to these executive branch agencies, we're going to let you make the rules. Well, is that a separation of powers issue? I mean, we could spend months talking about that question, but the answer to that in a nutshell is in the Administrative Procedures Act, it, it's section 553, Congress said, well, we're going we're gonna to come up with a process, and that process is called rulemaking. And so, yes, we're going to give this executive branch agency the power to, to make rules, but they have to do it in a specific way that complies with a procedure that Congress, the legislature, set forth. And that process is called rulemaking. And how it works, Section 553 of the Administrative Procedures Act says that if any agency, this doesn't just apply to MSHA, this could be the EPA, Department of Transportation, anybody, if they're going to come out with a new rule, they need to do two things. They need to publish it in the Federal Register so that everybody knows what they're considering in advance of coming out with rules. So so that's a proposed rule that needs to be published. And two, they have to give interested persons the opportunity to participate in the rulemaking through the submission of written data, views, or argument. And so that is what we sometimes call comment. So you hear the term notice and comment. The notice is the publication of the proposed rule and the comment is the participation of any interested party. It can be anybody. It doesn't have to be a, a company. It, it can be an individual. It doesn't have to be a union. It can be an individual worker. Anybody uh, can submit comments. So that's what we're dealing with. And so where we are right now in the silica rule is we've had the notice part, right? We've had the publication, and now we've had the invitation for the public to provide comment. So that's where we are. So Chris, you know, I, we've heard some discussions amongst our clients and some associations we're involved with. What does that look like? You know, when this providing of the comment generally, and then what do you expect to see in with respect to the silica rule? Yeah. So generally, you know, this particular rule, it was published on July 13th in the federal register. And so that triggers some deadlines. And so in terms of what comes next, submitting comments, written comments, you know, technically those would be due by August 28th uh, of this year, 2023. And written comments are, are just that, right? You can raise questions, you can raise arguments, you can, you know, submit additional scientific data, you can submit technical data, right? Saying, you know, compliance wouldn't be feasible, for example, because of X, Y, and Z. And then there's an opportunity for, you know, testimony, right? So comments can include written comments and then testimony in terms of, of appearing in a public hearing. So this particular proposed rule provides two public hearings. So one in Arlington, Virginia, set for August 3rd, and another one in Denver, Colorado, set for August 19th. And those public hearings, and exactly like as you've pointed out, Arthur, you know, companies can show up, individuals can show up. Other government agencies can show up, uh, you know, again, so interested parties, right? They show up and say, hey, we can do this or what about this, raising various issues. 
And those public hearings create transcripts, right? So there are transcripts of those. And, you know, those will be posted on, I don't think it's MSHA's website. I think it's on the Federal Register's. And so, yeah, and so it's a very, you know, public and transparent process. Um, as written comments are submitted, you can also see those online. So you can see what, you know, individuals or companies or, you know, again, whatever interested parties are submitting. And hopefully, you know, I know in years past, we've done comments for companies and agencies and associations and, right? So, you know, again, whatever interested parties. And we always you know, try to focus on, um, you know, we focus on saying, hey, you know, what's the substance of the rule and what are our substantive arguments, either for or against, right? And what are your thoughts, Arthur? Did I miss anything in, in either written or testimony comments? No, that's how it works. I think what's interesting is that, I guess a couple of things I'd add, you know, number one, that section 553 of the APA does not require that MSHA allow or any agency allow for testimony. But, you know, oftentimes they do. And in this case, MSHA has. A couple of thoughts, you know, in some past rulemaking efforts, we've seen the comment period and the testimony period extended. You know, for this rule, it's 45 days, which um, until the rulemaking record closes, all comments and testimony will have to be submitted by that. In my view, you know, that surprised me a little bit. I thought it was short given the breadth and depth of the rule and impact on the various sectors of the mining community. But MSHA does have the discretion to extend that. They see that, you know, additional comments are forthcoming or they have reason to believe there's a need for additional time. They could extend it. Will they in this case? You know, I, I tend to think they will. That's just my prognostication for the reasons I've stated. That being said, next year is an election year. Are they in a hurry to get this done? I don't know. But that's, that is something that's within the agency's discretion. We did see a pretty substantial extension of time on the power haulage rule. The other thing I guess I'd, I'd like to point out, and then I'll get your thoughts on where this goes going forward, Chris, is in addition to just being part of the process, why why is it important to submit comments? Well, obviously, first and foremost, if there's part of the rule or all of the rule that you have an issue with, good, bad, or otherwise, and you want your voice to be heard, this is your chance, right? This is That's what the administrative procedure is designed to do, is to give people a ready-made means for participating before the rule comes out. The other reason is you're providing information. So so what you're doing is you're really developing a record that shows your views and your reasons for those views. And that serves two purposes. Number one, when the final rule is published, there will be something called a preamble, which should include the agency's responses to all of the comments submitted. So if there's something you would like to be weighed in on, that's your chance. Uh, and number two, and we'll get to this in a little bit, a little bit later in the in the in the program. But you know, if there is a if there's a legal challenge to the final, you want to build that record ahead of time in the anticipation if that's going to happen, because any legal challenge would likely uh, take that into consideration. So, Chris, anything else on what happens next after the the, the comments are received, the development of the preamble for the final rule? And do you use the preamble? I mean, what do you find that useful in your practice? Um, yes, <laughs> on both counts. So, yeah, I think you know a very common question, and I think you, you touched on this, Arthur. Is you know once you submit comments, is the agency 
quote unquote, required to consider, you know, the comments. And my response to that is yes, as long as they're relevant to the rule, those comments should be addressed in the preamble to the final. And so, yeah, I mean, and I find those comments, that discussion to be very helpful because oftentimes when you're dealing with an issue, you're looking at a regulation or a standard and you're like, all right, what's the purpose of this, right? You're trying to divine, you know, what the goal of that enforcement or the requirements is. And so you look at the preamble to those rules and, you know, oftentimes that discussion will point out saying, hey, this is, you know, this is the intent of the rule, right? And oftentimes that can either help your case or hurt your case, you know, whatever it is, but it provides clarity, right, of the agency's position. Um, so I think the more substantive comments that we get and the more discussion that you have in a final rule, the preamble to the final rule is extremely helpful, right? I, Arthur, I don't know if you feel the same, but you know, oftentimes, right, we're looking and say, okay, what does this mean? And that's, I think, a very good source for that information. Sure. It's one of the sources I look at when trying to determine what a particular regulation means. You know, typically I'll look at, if, if I'm trying to, you know, ascertain the meaning of a term, I'll look at three sources. One is if the agency's put forth any guidance. Two is there have been any court cases interpreting it, and three is the the regulatory history, which is the preamble. And you know, unlike OSHA, which gives you those interpretation letters, MSHA doesn't do that. So sometimes we're left for interpretive purposes with what we have. And um, you know, the preamble can be very helpful. I actually know a couple of safety professionals who keep preambles of particularly important regulation with that on hand. Yeah, that's the next level. Yeah. <laughs> 92 and 96 uh, ventilation regs for underground coal, I know, uh, <laughs> in the in the desks at the safety offices for some of our clients. <laughs> right. And so I think, you know, looking at the preamble, I mean, as you, as you pointed out, I think that's one of these sources, you know, that we can look at in terms of agency interpretation, for example, or, you know, compliance. Um, you know, guidance, you know, technical assistance, right? I mean, I think that that preamble kind of forms the basis for all of this. And so I think, you know, once we see that preamble, we see the final rule, right? We'll have, you know, whatever, you know, some effective date of, in the final rule, 30 days, 60 days, whatever it might be. And, you know, MSHA is free to hold, you know, stakeholder meetings saying, hey, this is, you know, well, this is what this particular provisions mean. They'll give you advice, um, well, maybe not advice, right? But guidance, right? In terms of compliance expectations, this is how the agency would go about enforcing other requirements and the standards, right? So I think it's a multifaceted process where that final rule and the preamble to the final rule really lays the foundation for that. Well, you know, the next thing I want to talk about, and this is not necessarily to predict the future that there will be litigation, but there's oftentimes litigation. And, you know, after the agency considers the final comments and the information that's been provided, they will publish a final, um, much in the same way they published the proposed rule. It'll be published in the federal register. There will likely be an advanced copy that'll be able to be viewed. I know some in sources within the industry and in, within labor will probably be made aware of it. Um, so we'll know it's coming. We'll know when it's coming. But when that final rule comes out, that's the big deal. And that's, you know, both we want to see what's in the final rule. Did, 
Did the agency make any changes based on the comments received or not? And then if not, why didn't they? And how did they address some of the issues? And that's what's going on in the preamble that we're, we've been talking about. But what comes next? Well, what comes next is it becomes the law of the land as the rule, but the, the issues are not yet done if there's a challenge. And the Administrative Procedures Act says that you know any rule is subject to challenge uh, for a variety of reasons. And the Mine Act, the Federal Mine Safety and Health Act, specifically says that a rule promulgated by MSHA can be challenged within 60 days of its publication in a circuit court of appeals, either a DC, either the DC circuit or a circuit court where one has uh, connections to the geographical location. And the Administrative Procedures Act, actually section 706, um, gives us some guidance as to what can be challenged. Um, it's a section on scope of review. Um, and the big one, the big one here is that the a final rule can be challenged uh, for being, quote, arbitrary, capricious, and abusive discretion or otherwise not in accordance with law. Now, what does that mean? Because that's a bunch of legal words, legalese right there. What does that mean? Well, it depends on what court you're in. But, you know, if a rule is challenged, first and foremost, there the court's going to see if, if the rule was within the scope of the agency's authority. Is it something that the agency should have even been, been entertaining? But by and large, that's that's usually going to be the case. But one court has described arbitrariness uh, in terms of reviewing rules as follows. An agency's decision will be considered arbitrary if it relied on factors which Congress had not intended it to consider, entirely failed to consider an important aspect of the problem, offered an explanation for its decision that runs counter to the evidence before the agency or is so implausible that it could not be ascribed to a, a difference in view or the product of agency expertise. And then there's another, and it's sort of an addendum to that um, in another court case that sort of builds off of that, says that a rule will be considered arbitrary where there is no rational connection between the facts found and the choices made. So going back to what we were saying before in terms of building your record on the rulemaking process, if there's going to be a challenge, one of the things you can challenge is whether the final rule represents an explanation for the rule that runs counter to the evidence. Well, the only way you can make that argument is if you've produced the evidence on the front end. Similarly, is there a rational connection between the facts found and the choices made? Well, what were the facts found? What were the facts produced to the agency during the rulemaking process? And was there a rational connection between those facts and what it ultimately concluded in its rule? And I will say, you know, I was part of the legal challenge to the workplace exam rule in metal, non-metal, and that was one of the arguments that was made. And um, frankly, you know, we, we did not prevail in that challenge, but there was a dissent by one of the judges. So, and th this was right in line with the challenges that were brought. So even amongst the judges on that panel, there was a difference of opinion as to whether there was a rational connection between the facts presented to the agency and the, and the ultimate decision made uh, when they promulgated the rules. So, you know, all of that goes back to the rulemaking record that it made. So, you know, it's not to say there's going to be litigation or we're not fighting litigation, 
But if there is, or if there's, if it's possible that there's going to be litigation of the rule, the record needs to be made on the front end in the rulemaking process. And I should say one other point on litigation of a rule, a challenge to a rule. A rule can be challenged in total or it can be challenged in part. So, um, you know, a challenge can be made to the entire rule or to certain provisions of the rule. But, but either way, you know, the record needs to be there for, for the challenge to, to have any chance of succeeding. Yeah, no, I think that really highlights the importance of the notice and comment rulemaking process. You know, it's not just, hey, let me air out some, some grievances. It's really almost a technical process. And I suspect, at least in terms of this proposed silica rule, I think we're going to be relying on a lot, you know, IHs, industrial hygienists, to, you know, kind of form the basis of, of rational commentary. And so, yeah, I think, you know, the more that you can build the record, I think that just makes it a better rule all around, right? If you go through this process, you have the agency, you know, addressing concerns raised by, you know, industry, let's call it that, right? And that, yeah, if need be, right? And that that record then forms a basis for any, any challenge down the road. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good, robust process that, you know, I think folks do take seriously, so... Yeah, you know, Chris, I got to say, over the years of doing this, there have been times I thought that um, people didn't jump in head first in the rulemaking process, and then other times that they did. I'm pretty sure this is going to be the latter, and it should be. I think this is going to be an area where people are, are going to avail themselves of the process. And, you know, and I would say that in doing so, I guess I have two thoughts on the the 50-some questions that MSHA put forth, number one, I, I would work toward addressing those as best you can or to the degree they're relevant to your position because those are the issues they're looking towards. So if you know they're going to address those in the final rule. Somebody's going to address them. So it might as well be you when you submit your comments. But that said, the flip side of the same coin is if there's something you feel that is not being addressed or is being glossed over or is being lost in only responding to those 50 questions, although 50 questions is quite a lot. But if there is something else, the rulemaking provision of the Administrative Procedures Act says any interested party, well, whatever your interest is, if it's beyond those 50 questions, you have the statutory right to have your voice heard and MSHA's even said that in the rule, that they are will welcome comments on on any area relevant to the rule, which which they are required to do. So it's good that they acknowledge that. So don't don't feel confined by that. Um, so I, I guess both address those questions to the degree you think is necessary and also don't feel confined by that would be my thoughts in this particular instance. Yeah, no, I think those are all great points. You know, what does that rule mean? to individual parties, I think can be different, right? Can vary. Whenever I look at rules like this, they're, they're very technical heavy. I think one of my, one of my concerns is bridging any potential gaps between the, the theory, if you will, right? The reasons behind the rule and then, you know, actual compliance, right? You know, just to make sure everyone involved understands, okay, what are the expectations? And then how can I meet those expectations, right? If I think the clearer we can make that on both sides, the better. So 
yeah, that's that's what I would be looking at in terms of potential comments and when, where we go. And then obviously, as you mentioned, Arthur, I mean, focusing on specific questions that the agency's asking, right? Saying, hey, provide us information on, you know, these 50 odd questions. And yeah, don't, don't feel like you need to limit yourself to those. Well, it'll make for an interesting summer, Chris, and a busy summer. I guess we all have our work cut out for us. So, uh, agreed. Trying to get that la- last uh, summer vacation plans in before the kids go back to school. Well, you're going to be working on some comments while in. So, <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll keep everybody updated, right, as this develops and whether or not these deadlines that we see in the proposed rule, if they. If they stay firm or if we see some extensions, you know, obviously we'll keep everybody apprised of that. Absolutely. And don't forget what Chris said about you can view those comments on the website that is linked to the MSHA website. It's not an MSHA website, but it is linked to the rulemaking page on MSHA. I always find that interesting, you know, as they're trickling in to to see what people are thinking. So avail yourselves of the process and um, stay up to date and we will do our best to do the same. That's absolutely right. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. All right. Thank you. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.